Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's lecture. Thank you, everyone, for coming. As Elika said, my name's Dr. Catherine Collins. I'm a Leave Hume Early Career Fellow at the Department of Education and a Fellow of the Life Writing Centre at Wolfson College. I'm delighted to introduce this year's post-colonial seminar series headline lecture, which is co-sponsored, as Elika said, by Torch, the Oxford Centre for Life Writing and All Writers Make Worlds. Created and directed by Professor Elika Boma, who is chairing the lecture this evening, Writers Make Worlds is both a research project and a live, evolving resource. It tunes into the challenges faced by contemporary black and Asian British writers whose voices are often misheard, especially by institutions. And it strains to hear the ways in which these writers compose the new cultural and linguistic environments in their work from scratch. You might even say by ear, using whatever is at hand. With its attention to these issues, Writers Make Worlds explores the various ways in which writers make and mould exciting, new, different worlds through their writing, how they encourage us, through reading, to work out and work through new ways of thinking about the world and thinking about ourselves in the world. Our speaker this evening is, of course, a shining example of such a writer, one who encourages us to think with and think through the world she composes with language. Dr. Sara Ahmed is a prolific feminist writer and an independent scholar whose work is grounded in feminist, queer and anti-racist politics. Her most recent publications include, on being included, a book about racism and diversity in institutional life, Willful Subjects, which explores the concept of will and willfulness across a range of philosophical and literary texts. And of course, the highly influential Living a Feminist Life. Everyone should read this book, Bell Hooks said. So there you go. What I hear in a very vibrant way in Sarah's most recent work is the rather wonderful idea of a world that might contain a feminist ear. A feminist ear, and here I'm quoting picks up on the sounds that are blocked by the collective will not to hear. The sounds of no, the complaints about violence, the refusals to laugh at sexist jokes, the refusals to comply with unreasonable demands. To acquire a feminist ear is to hear those sounds as speech. This reminds me of a beautiful piece of writing by another brilliant feminist scholar, Dr Lucy Allen Goss who identifies in medieval poetry the kind of speech that might resonate in a feminist ear. She calls it bird speech. Bird speech always, and I quote, requires interpretation before we know what it means, and it places on us, places us on the margins of the main discourse. This evening, Sarah will speak about her research into complaints as diversity work, which draws upon many interviews with university staff and students who've made complaints about unfair, unjust or unequal working conditions or abuses of power. In this way, she's transformed the concept of the feminist ear into a method, a method chirruping with feminist list listening and feminist support. To quote once again, once those who have experienced harassment hear that you're willing to hear, they will speak to you. More and more people will speak to you. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah Ahmed.
thank you, both of you, for introducing this event and this project, writers and worlds making each other, I think. And I'm really delighted to be sharing this work with you, this work that comes out of a listening project, listening to those who've made complaints. So my lecture today is an attempt to think through the experience of complaint, to think about that experience and to think with those who make complaints. I'll be drawing on interviews I've conducted with staff and students who have made complaints within universities that relate to unfair, unjust or unequal working conditions or to abuses of power such as harassment and bullying. I want to give room to complaint, to listen to complaint in order to counter a history that has become routine in which those who complain are dismissed, rendered incredible. The mere fact of making a complaint can be used against the one who complains. An early career lecturer who made a complaint about how the university mishandled her sick leave was told that her ability to complain was evidence that she was not unwell. If I was well enough to stamp my foot and complain, then I was well enough to work. Stamp my foot and complain. Because she could hear how she was being heard, we too have the opportunity to hear something how a complaint is audible as a tantrum, how the complainer is cast as spoiled, how a grievance is heard as a grudge. Being able to complain about an oppressive situation is used as evidence that you're not rarely oppressed by that situation. To complain within an organisation so often brings you up against it. And she realised through making the complaint that I wasn't just a person who was off sick, I was a person who had a grievance against the way I had been treated at the university. And in making a complaint, she finds out that other people in her department had made complaints. It was quite amazing, actually, to find that in my department, there are more than a handful of staff who were there complaining about the same issues. But all of us were doing it, not in silence, but in an atomised way, so that none of us actually knew that we were having similar problems and were making similar complaints. However much procedures can be used to atomise, to individuate and to separate, a complaint can lead you to recognise what is shared. Similar complaints, similar problems. And this is how the work of trying to address a problem can lead you to realise the scale of that problem. She describes what it was like to do this work. It was like a little bird scratching away at something and it wasn't really having any effect. It was just really small, small, small and behind closed doors. I think people maybe feel that because of the nature of the complaint and you're off work, so they have to be polite and not talk about it. And so much of their politeness is because they don't want to say something. And maybe it is to do with being in an institution and the way they are built. Long corridors, doors with locks on them, windows with blinds that come down, it seems to sort of imbue every part of it with a cloistered feeling. There is no air. It feels suffocating. It was like, note this yet. A complaint as something you are doing can acquire exteriority, becoming a thing in the world, scratching away a little bird. All your energy going into an activity that matters so much to what you can do and who you can be, but barely seems to leave a trace the more you try. The smaller it becomes, you become smaller, smaller still. You can sense a scale of a problem by becoming aware of just what little room you have. 
and a complaint is made confidential as soon as it is lodged, so all of this happens behind closed doors. A complaint as a secret, as a source of shame, as what keeps you apart from others. And a complaint becomes almost like a magnifying glass. So much appears. So many details are being picked up by an attention. The intensity of an experience can be illuminating. The geography of a place, the building, the long corridors, the locked doors, the windows, the blinds that can come down, less light, less room. You cannot breathe, cloistered, suffocating. Long corridors, locked doors, windows of blinds that come down. These are familiar features of our built environment. And they might also be teaching us something about how institutions work, for whom they work, how passages are opened or closed, how routes are enabled or disenabled, how some are given room to breathe, others not. A complaint as diversity work, the work we have to do because we are not accommodated, the work we have to do in order to be accommodated. I was inspired to this project after taking part in a series of inquiries into sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, prompted by a collective complaint lodged by students. And I learned so much from the work they had to do to keep that complaint going. I understand this project is being part of a shared struggle to rebuild universities, to enable them to become more accommodating. Some of my companions in thought are Gloria Vecca, Shirley Tate, and Heidi Merzer, among many others. My lecture today is thinking with those I've spoken to. So the complainers are my guides. They are my feminist philosophers, my critical theorists, and also my collective. Because this material is confidential, I'll be sharing only fragments from each story. A complaint can be shattering. Like a broken jug, we can be left in pieces. I'll be picking up some of these pieces today, not in order to create the illusion of some unbroken thing, but so that we can learn from the sharpness of each piece how they fit together. So this first section is called Institutional Mechanics. <clears throat> so making a complaint can require becoming an institutional mechanic. You have to work out how to get a complaint through a system. And it's because of the difficulty of getting through that complaints often end up being about a system. Now, this point might seem counterintuitive given that organisations typically have complaints procedures. So surely you might say to make a complaint is to follow the procedure for making a complaint. Things are not always as they seem. So on paper, it can seem as if making a complaint is a rather linear process. Indeed, in the UK, in the case of student complaints, a procedure is often represented as a flowchart with paths and arrows that give the would-be complainant a clear route through. The clarity of a procedure can be used to indicate a commitment. Organisations often use complaints procedures as evidence they've dealt with a problem. So one university writes that complaints will assist in identifying problems and trends across the university. And then they then write that complaints will form the basis of positive publicity in demonstrating that identified issues have been resolved. So when complaints record a problem, they can be quickly folded into a solution as a record of how universities have resolved something, resolution, dissolution. Resolutions can be problems given new forms. 
Listening to those who have made or tried to make a formal complaint has taught me that the gap between what is supposed to happen and what does happen is deeply, densely populated. And this gap is where my own study is located. I am minding the gap. So I spoke to one administrator about her work in supporting students through the complaints process. So your first stage would acquire the complainant to try and resolve it informally, which is very really difficult in some situations and which is where it might get stuck in a department. And so it takes a very really tenacious complaining student to say, no, I'm being blocked. If something bad has happened and you're not feeling that way inclined, you can understand why a student would not have the tenacity to make sure that happens. So you can imagine that something on paper that looks very linear is actually very circular a lot of the time, and I think that's the problem. Students get discouraged and get demoralised and feel hard done by, and nothing's getting resolved, and then they're in a murky place, and they can't get out. So if a procedure exists to clear a path, that path can be blocked at any point. And a complaint is not simply the outcome of a no. A complaint requires you keep saying no along the way. And this practitioner acknowledges that what is required to proceed with a complaint, in her terms, confidence and tenacity, might be what is eroded by the very experiences that led to the complaint. Something bad has happened, not feeling that way inclined. So to mind the gap is to listen and to learn from those who experience a process. And I've been here before, minding the gap. In an early project, I talked to diversity and equal opportunities practitioners based in British and Australian universities. One practitioner describes the word diversity as a big, shiny apple. It all looks wonderful, but the inequalities aren't being addressed. So diversity can be used rather like complaints procedures, a way of appearing to address a problem. The use of diversity can be a sign of the difficulty of getting through. So this practitioner described her job thus. It's a banging your head against a brick wall job. So here, a job description becomes a wall description. And if you keep banging your head against a wall and the wall keeps its place, it is you that gets sore. And what happens to the wall? All you seem to have done is scratched the surface. And this is what doing diversity work often feels like, scratching the surface, scratching at the surface. We can think back to that description of a complaint as a little bird scratching away at something, scratching, giving you a sense of the limits of what you can accomplish. So I want to return to one example from this earlier research project, as it's much to teach us about institutional mechanics. So in this example, a diversity practitioner is trying to get a new policy agreed so that all members of academic appointment panels receive diversity training. So I call this a wall story, and like all wall stories, it's very long, but I need to read it out to you in full so that you can hear what it feels like. When I was first here, there was a policy that you had to have three people on every panel who had been diversity trained. But then there was a decision early on when I was here that it should be everybody, all panel members, at least internal people. They took that decision at the Equality and Diversity Committee, which several members of the senior management team were present at. But then the Director of Human Resources found out about it and decided we didn't have the resources to support it, and it went to council with that taken out. And council were told that they were happy to have just three members, only a person on council was an external member of the diversity committee, went ballistic, and I'm not kidding, went ballistic and said the minutes didn't reflect what had happened in the meeting, 
because the minutes said the decision was different to what actually happened, and I didn't take the minutes, by the way. And so they had to take it through and reverse it. And the council decision was that all people should be trained. And despite that, I have then sat in meetings where they've just continued saying that it has to be just three people on the panel. And I said, but no, council changed their view. And I can give you the minutes. And they just look at me as if I'm saying something really stupid. This went on for ages, even though the council minutes definitely said all panel members should be trained. And to be honest, sometimes you just give up. So a decision made in the present about the future can be overridden by the momentum of the past. The past becomes like a well-worn path. What usually happens still happens. And note that the head of human resources did not need to take the policy out of the minutes for the policy not to bring something into effect. I call this dynamic non-performativity when naming something does not bring something into effect or when something is named in order not to bring something into effect. So what stopped something from happening could have been the removal of the policy from the minutes or it could have been the failure of anyone at council to notice that removal, but it wasn't. The policy was stopped by how those within the institution acted after it had been agreed. And so we learn agreeing to something can be another way of stopping it from happening. So the story of how a wall keeps standing is the same story as the story of how a diversity worker ends up shattered. As she said, eventually, you might just give up. And consider all the energy she expended on getting a policy agreed that does not do anything. It's not just a policy, but all of her labor of creating that policy, of getting it through, that does not appear. It's almost as like it didn't happen, or perhaps even that she didn't happen, or that she doesn't exist. Perhaps she too is heard as a little birds scratching away at something, interrupting the flow of the meeting with that low, irritating noise. Let's return to the work of minding the gap, the gap between what does happen and what is supposed to happen. Complaints, too, can be all the more difficult because so much of what happens around them is treated by those around them as if it's not happening at all. And remember, too, that what happens when a complaint is made often happens behind closed doors, and those doors can be closed to those who actually make the complaints, so that it's hard to know what is happening, although you know what is happening is not what is supposed to be happening. So words are everywhere in my data are surreal, weird, strange, odd, bizarre, disorientating. An early career lecturer uh, who was sexually harassed by a senior professor describes her own experience of complaint thus. It's like being trapped in some kind of weird dream where you know you jump from one section to another because you never know the narrative. I think that's the power that institutional abuse has on you. So making a complaint can feel like becoming a character in somebody else's story. What happens to you is dependent on decisions that are made without your knowledge or consent. And this is why complaints about harassment can often feel like being harassed all over again being subjected again to the will of others. So this gap between what does happen and what should happen can be what you fall through or how you fall through. Cracks in the system are part of the system. We might remember, after all, that mind the gap is familiar to us as an advice and as a warning. We might recognise a sign from the London Underground. And warnings are useful because they introduce notions of caution 
predicated not on abstract rules about rights and wrongs, but on someone's own health and safety. When you are trying to make a complaint, you are frequently warned about the consequences of complaining. So one student describes, I was repeatedly told that rocking the boat or making waves would affect my career in the future, and that I would ruin the department for everyone else. I was told if I did put in a complaint, I would never be able to work in the university, and that it was likely I wouldn't get a job elsewhere. So here, complaining is framed as self-damage, depriving yourself of a career that you want, that you fought for, as well as damage to others, ruining a department, no less. This student went on to describe how the pressure not to complain was exerted. In just one day, I was subjected to eight hours of gruelling meetings and questioning, almost designed to break me and stop me from taking the complaint any further. You can stop people from doing something by making it harder for them to do something. We might note as well that a warning can operate not simply as a predictive utterance of the danger ahead, but can also work as a threat. The student commented on how her head of department made repeated reference to her source of funding during one of these meetings, to be reminded of how she is dependent upon the department for resources is to be told that they can be the ones who can make her topple over. And it might be that some programs come with warnings built into them. A postdoctoral researcher, a woman of colour, wanted to make a complaint about racial discrimination. But she was hired as part of a diversity program. And she knows that the program is precarious. I don't want to do something that is going to threaten a program that is supposed to diversify the faculty. Diversity as a promise to transform the institution often ends up being located in students and scholars of colour who are assumed to be here because we bring diversity with us, however we are hired. And that can make it even harder to address the problems we have when we get here. So she used the term coercive diversity for how the university wanted to make use of her body and her research as evidence of its diversity whilst undermining her work as a colleague, as an early career academic, indeed as a human being. So warnings often articulate a no, don't go there. But complaints can also be stopped by a yes, by the appearance of being heard. So one academic brings a complaint to her line manager. I would say he's a yes man. So whenever I talked to him, he would say yes. But I knew the yes was definitely not a yes. It was a we'll see. So perhaps a yes can be said because there's not enough behind that yes to bring something about. We are back to the non-performative, often given bodily expression as a nod, a yes, nod, nod. She describes yes saying as a kind of management technique, which she also understands as magic. This weird, almost magical thing that happens when you speak to people in management, when you go in there and you're kind of ready for it, and you're really fired up, and you kind of put your complaint, your case, your story to the person, and then you sort of leave as if a spell has been cast, leave feeling like, okay, something might happen. And then that kind of wears off a few hours later and you think, oh my gosh. It's like a sleight of hands, almost like a trick. You feel tricked. The feeling that something might happen can be what is being achieved. To be left with a sense you are getting somewhere is how you don't end up getting anywhere. So a yes can stop a complaint from progressing by diffusing the energy of the one who complains. Almost like the complaint as a fire being fired up 
is, is extinguished, calmed, cooled. So a complaint can be expressed in order that it can be contained. You're allowed to say no when that no has nowhere to go. And then once you've got the complaint out of your system, the complaint is out of the system. I think of this mechanism as, as institutional venting, which functions rather like a pressure release valve. You, you're allowed to let off just enough pressure so that it does not build up and cause an explosion. Another method of stopping a complaint is to declare that the complaint is not a complaint because it doesn't fulfill the technical requirements for being a complaint. So for example, one member of staff who made a complaint about bullying from her head of department uh, had, had, had experienced this bullying as devastating and she'd suffered from depression as a result. So it took her a long time to get to the point when she could actually put her complaint together. She describes what happens. I basically did it when I was able to because I was just really unwell for a significant period of time. And I put in the complaint and the response that I got was from the deputy VC. He said that he couldn't process my complaint because I had taken too long to lodge it. Some experiences are so devastating that it takes time to process them. But that length of time can be used to disqualify a complaint. So the tightening of the complaint as a genre, the complaint as a requirement to fill in a certain form in a certain way at a certain time is how many struggles are not recorded. And if organisations can disqualify complaints because they take too long to make, they can themselves take too long in accordance with their own procedures to respond to complaints. So one student described how the university took seven months to respond to her complaint. It was supposed to take no more than three. And then another seven months to respond to her response to their response to her complaint. She has a theory. It is my theory they've been putting in the long finger and pulling this out, dragging this out over unacceptable periods of time to try and tire me out so that I'll just give up. So sometimes it can seem that exhaustion is not just the effect, but the very point of the complaint process. So exhaustion becomes a management technique. You tire people out so they're too tired to address what makes them too tired. I've used the term strategic inefficiency to point to how organisations have interests in stopping or slowing complaints. We might think of inefficiency as being annoying, yes, but indiscriminate, affecting everyone and everything. But listening to those who complain has taught me how inefficiency can be discriminatory. An international student was waiting for her complaint to be processed whilst her visa was running out. Ten days before my visa was about to run out, I applied for a new visa, and they were like, how can we give her a visa? She's on probation. You have to have a good stain to get a visa. And they were like, this complaint thing is open. For students and staff who are more precarious because of their residential employment or financial status, the longer a complaint is kept open, the more you could lose. A whole life can be what unravels. Those who have the least need to complain are then those who could most afford the consequences of complaint. I think there's a connection between the discriminatory effects of inefficiency and the efficiency with which organisations reproduce themselves as being for certain kinds of people, those whose papers are in the right place, those who are in the right place, those who are upright, able, well-resourced and well-connected. So you can lodge a complaint, it can even go through the whole system and still nothing happens. Perhaps complaints end up in a filing cabinet, filing as filing away. One student said of her complaint, 
it just gets shoved in a box. Another describes, I feel like my complaint has gone into the complaint graveyard. When a complaint is filed away or binned or buried, those who complain can end up feeling that they too are filed away or binned or buried. We need to remember that a complaint is a record of what happens to a person. Complaints are personal. Complaints are also records of what happens in institution. Complaints are institutional. The personal is institutional. One academic researcher shared her complaint file with me. One of the things I talked about in those documents, I am very open. I was under such stress and trauma that my periods stopped. That's the intimacy of some of the things that go into it. Bodily functions like this. A body can stop functioning. A body can announce a complaint. And that body is in a document. And that document is in a file. And that file is in a cabinet. To file a complaint can mean to become alienated from your own history, a history that is often difficult, painful, and traumatic, to file a complaint as becoming alienated from your own alienation. This second section is called In the Thick of It. So I focus thus far on what happens to complaints and some of the mechanisms by which they are, are stopped. But complaints, of course, are not the starting point. If complaints are about what precedes them, then complaints take us back. They have, if you like, a backward temporality. So in this section, I'm going to back up somewhat. So one student gives an account of turning up at a postgraduate retreat. They were making jokes, jokes that were horrific. They were doing it in a very small space in front of staff and nobody was saying anything. And it felt like my reaction to it was out of kilter with everyone else. It felt really disconnected, the way I felt about the way they were behaving and the way everyone else was laughing. They were talking about milking bitches. I still can't quite get to the bottom of where the jokes were coming from. Nobody was saying anything about it. People were just laughing along. You start to stand out in that way. You're just not playing along. That sexist expression, milking bitches, seemed to have a history. And each time that expression is used, that history is thrown out like a line, a line you have to follow if you are to get anywhere. When laughter fills the room like water in a cup, laughter as holding something, it can feel like there's no room left. To experience such jokes as offensive is to become alienated not only from the jokes, but the laughter that surrounds them, propping them up, giving them somewhere to go. So just by not laughing, not going along with something, she starts to stand out. And I think this is very important. A complaint can be registered before anything is even said. It can be expressed by how a body is not attuned to an environment. To express can mean to squeeze something out. In another instance, a junior female lecturer was sexually harassed by a senior male professor, mainly through constant verbal communications. He, he emailed her about wanting to suck her toes. She thought she'd handle this by asking her line manager to ask him to stop, not knowing that her line manager had sat on that request. When an attempt to stop harassment is stopped, the harassment does not stop. And then I was in a meeting with my line manager and her line manager, and we were in this little office space, like a glass fishbowl type meeting room. And then the main office where all the staff desks were, and he emailed me, and I made a sound, Ugh! There's no way to articulate it. Someone's just dragging your insides like a meat grinder. Oh, God. 
this is not going to stop. And I made that sound out loud and my line manager's line manager said, what's happened? And so I turned my computer around and showed him. He said, for fuck's sake, how stupid do you have to be to put that in an email? You could see a look of panic on her face. Like, crap, this has not magically gone away. Notice the, the word magic appearing again here. Like, you, you, through magic, try and make the complaint go away, then the harassment is what stays. And that sound, that, uh pierces the meeting, that meeting taking place in the little glass room, a fishbowl, where they can all be seen. So something can become visible and audible, sometimes even despite yourself. A complaint is what comes out, because you can't take it anymore. You just can't take it anymore. Your inside's like a meat grinder. A complaint is how you're turned inside out. And note how the problem, once acknowledged, is implied to be not so much the harassment, but that there was evidence of it. For fuck's sake, how stupid do you have to be to put that in an email? A sound becomes a complaint because it brings to the surface a violence that is in the room but would otherwise not have to be faced. We could think about those windows of blinds that come down. We learn how violence is often dealt with by not being faced. And then it's as if the complaint that uh, brings a violence into existence, forcing it to be faced, such that the, the, the complaint almost carries the force of the violence directed to the one who complains. It becomes forceful. Going back to the case of the postgraduate student, it is because she experiences what is already in the room as being violent that the violence is then channeled in her direction. He specifically went for me verbally at a table where everyone was eating lunch. It was a large table with numerous amounts of people around it, including staff. I was having quite a personal conversation with someone, and he literally leant across the table or physically came forward. He was slightly ajar to me. He was really close, and he said, oh, my God, I can see you ovulating. Because she did not find the jokes funny, because she expressed that she was not condoning the behaviour, because she is not happy with what is going on, he comes after her. Her personal space invaded, words flung out, flung at. She was reduced to body, pulled back, woman as ovaries. She's not allowed to do her own thing, to have a conversation with others, to be occupied as a student. She describes what follows. I think the staff member knew I was deeply upset by it. I pretty much left the table and he followed me out and started the conversation and this is when probably, in hindsight, it started to get difficult. And that staff member started to lean on me. Immediately he said to me, oh, you know what he's like? He's got a really strange sense of humour. He didn't mean anything by it. And the implication was I was being a bit oversensitive and that I couldn't take a joke. And that I need to sort of forget about it and move on. So note then there is an effort to stop the student from complaining about the situation in the situation. She's told not to say anything, not to be oversensitive, not to do anything, not to cause trouble. And the staff member, by leaning in this way, positions himself with the harasser, treating the verbal onslaught as a joke, as something she should take and keep taking. So the harasser physically came forward, the staff member leans on her. The response to harassment is harassment, and that is the institutional response. So harassment can be the effort to stop you identifying harassment as harassment, which means that the one who identifies harassment as harassment is often harassed all the more. So the experiences that lead to complaint and the experiences of complaint are very hard to untangle. They are often part of the same experience. If complaints take us back, they are also imminent. They are about what we are in. And sometimes you might have to complain 
in order to even get in. So one academic describes how she used to keep pointing out that rooms are inaccessible because they keep booking rooms that are inaccessible. She has to keep saying it because they keep doing it. I worry about drawing attention to myself, but this is what happens when you hire a person in a wheelchair. There have been major access issues at the university. She spoke of the drain, the exhaustion, the sense of why should I have to be the one who speaks out? You have to speak out because others do not. And because you speak out, others can justify their own silence. They hear you. So it becomes about you. Major access issues become your issues. And a complaint is treated as a broken record, as if she is the one who's stuck on the same point. When we complain because of what we come up against, we come up against what we complain about. So by complaint as diversity work, I'm also talking about minding the gap. The gap between how things are and how they're supposed to be or how they appear to be can be how you are stopped. So minding the gap could also be understood as wall work. What stops you does not appear to others. You can't get into the room, others can. So wall work is work because structures often disappear for those who are enabled by them. And I think of wall work as philosophical as well as practical work. What is supposed to be or appears to be might be the view that the university offers of itself. Diversity is a kind of weak universality, that shiny apple. The university is open to everyone. Come in, come in, welcome. That view might be shared by those for whom the university is open. You might experience the university as being open because it was open to you. So to encounter a wall is to learn that that which is deemed the quality of a thing, the university is open, is in fact the quality of a relation, the university is open to some. When the two disappears, that some becomes universal. So what I'm calling the wall gives concrete expression to the failure of universalism. So no wonder we keep making the same points. If you have to keep pointing to structures that work by receding from general view, you are the one who ends up standing out. So war work can then be about where you end up. For example, you might end up on the diversity committee. You often end up on the diversity committee because of who you are not. Not white, not cis, not able-bodied, not man, not straight. The more nots you are, the more committees you are on. <laughs> but you're still supposed to do that work with a smile. A woman of colour academic describes, I was on the equality and diversity group in the university and as soon as I started mentioning things to do with race, they changed the portfolio who could be on the committee and I was dropped. So certain words, words like race, racism, you just have to say them and you'll be heard as complaining. They become, as it were, complaint carriers. So complaints can be as much about how you are received as what you send out. She added, Whenever you raise something, the response is that you're not one of them. Not one of them. I think back to that broken record. Maybe this is where it gets stuck. Not one of them, not one of them, not one of them. A complaint seems to amplify what makes you not fit, picking up on what you are not. And a complainer becomes a foreigner. A complaint is confirmation that you're not really from here. A complaint that you do not belong can be used as evidence that you do not belong. An early le career lecturer describes, I've been told I have a chip on my shoulder, that I've got a chip on my shoulder because I'm Jewish, I have a chip on my shoulder because I'm foreign living in this country and you're upset about Brexit, or because you're gay and you're just looking for the problems. 
And you start thinking, am I looking for these problems? I just turn it inwards. Is it me? Is it my fault? I lie awake at night thinking, is it actually a problem with me here? Chip, chip, chip. If we chip away at that old block, no wonder they keep finding those chips on our shoulders. The more knots you are, the more chips they find. But if you keep having a problem, you can still end up feeling that the problem is with you. And it can be exhausting to keep coming up against the same thing. Another academic describes, and then of course you get witch-hunted, you get scapegoated, you become the troublesome upper tea woman, you become the one who does not fit, you become everything the bully accuses you of because nobody is listening to you. And you hear yourself starting to take that not petulant toll, bangs table, come on. You can hear them saying, ah, there you go. A diversity practitioner had said something very similar to me, that she only had to open her mouth in meetings to witness eyes rolling as if to say, oh, here she goes. And both times we laughed. It can be a relief to have an experience, however difficult, put into words. The feminist killjoy, that leaky container, comes up here. She comes up in what we can hear. We hear each other in the wear and the tear of the words we share. We hear what it's like to come up against the same thing over and over again. We imagine the eyes rolling as if to say, well, she would say that. It was from experiences like this that I developed my equation, rolling eyes equals feminist pedagogy. <laughs> this section is behind closed doors. I open my lecture by showing how a complaint can lead to an institution being registered all the more intensely, the corridors, the windows of blinds that come down, the doors with locks on them. Doors in particular keep coming up in my data. I'm speaking to an academic about the first complaint she made when she was a student. One of her lecturers on her course had been making her feel uncomfortable. One time she enters his room. And then one afternoon I went into his office to talk to him about something. It was an office a bit like this, but without any glass, with a door that opened inwards and opened on a latch. And he pushed me against the back of a door and tried to kiss me and I pushed him away. It was an instinctive pushed him away and tried to get out of the room and it was a horrible moment because I realised I couldn't actually. It was very difficult to operate the latch. We are back to the door, the back of the door. A door without glass solid, can't be seen through. A door is what you're pushed against, the latch that won't open, getting stuck, trying to get out, the work you have to do to get out. She did get out of his room, but it was hard. Behind closed doors, harassment happens there, out of view, in secret. You can be locked in, you can be locked out. Doors have something else to teach us. They teach us the significance of a complaint about harassment being lodged in the same place the harassment happened. A door is shut on her. The same door is shut on the complaint, the same door. She submits an informal complaint, a letter detailing the assault. Where does her complaint go? Her letter ends up with the dean. What does the dean do? The dean basically told me I should sit down and have a cup of tea with this guy to sort it out. So often the response to a complaint about harassment is to minimise that harassment as if what occurred is just a minor squabble between two parties, something that can be sorted out by a cup of tea, that English signifier of reconciliation. And then a complaint would become a failure, your failure, her failure, to resolve the situation more amicably. She did not proceed to a formal complaint. Her complaint was stopped, he was not. Now, I say her complaint was stopped rather than she was stopped because she did go on to have a career. She is now, in fact, a professor. 
But this experience of being assaulted when she was a student stayed with her. She describes, I thought I got a first because of academic merit, but then after this happened, I remember thinking, but hang on, maybe not. Maybe this was some sort of ruse to try and keep me in the institution so I could keep the contact going. It starts undermining your own sense of your academic merit, the quality of your work, and all that kind of stuff. Being harassed by a lecturer can damage your sense of self-worth, intellectual worth, leading you to question yourself, doubt yourself. Her complaint was stopped, she was not, but she carries that history with her. Her complaint was stopped, he was not, so what happens to him? She tells us. He was a known harasser. There were lots of stories told about him. I had a friend who was very vulnerable. He took advantage of that. She ended up taking her own life. She ended up taking her own life, so much more pain, so much more damage at the edges of this one woman's story of damage. He went on. He was allowed to go on when her complaint, and for all we know, there were others too. We do not know how many said no, did not stop him. He has since retired, much respected by his peers, with no blemish on his record. No blemish on his record and no blemish on the institution's record. The damage carried by those who did complain or would complain if they could complain is carried around like baggage, slow, heavy, down. <coughs> to hear complaint is to hear from those weighed down by a history that has left little trace in the official records. And organisations become aligned with those who abuse the power given to them by virtue of position because they share an interest in stopping what is recorded by a complaint from getting out. Damage to a person is deflected by being treated as potential damage to an institution or damage to a person if a person is indeed named by a complaint. And that damage is often evoked through or as concern, as concern for consequences, for how much he or they would have to lose, reputation, status, standing, and so on. He or they, he and they, it's not just his standing that matters, but their standing. Complaints about harassment are often received by those who share a standing. So when another student made a complaint after being sexually assaulted by her lecturer, this time he'd forced himself on her in his office after locking the door, she is called to a meeting. She describes it for us. One of the professors said laughing, for instance, ah, he's always like this, isn't he? Always very seductive and funny. He's always been like this since we were studying together. He also touches me when talking what's so... While the other was saying, oh, I've known him so many years, it must be some misunderstanding for sure. While the other was just smiling and nodding back to that non-performative before even having heard what I had to say. Note how that shared history is casually evoked here, studying together, I've known him for years, and how that evocation is also justification. We know him, he also touches me, he's always been like this. The evocation of a shared history is how a complaint about an assault is dismissed, smiling, nodding, as if to say, if you knew him, you would forgive him friendship as fatalism. So a complaint can be stopped because of what is shared or who is shared, loyalties, personal, as well as professional. Affection becoming cement in a wall, a bond, a bind, be kind. He is one of our kind. So when we're talking about closing doors, we are also talking about closing ranks. As another student described, they have each other's backs. Their backs become doors. So these historic connections are kept alive as communication pathways. And a complaint seems to function like a switch, an alarm or an alert that triggers a reaction. A complaint is how a network comes alive to protect those who are the most networked. You can almost hear the buzz of electricity or the phone lines becoming busy. The more someone is connected, the more others are invested in that connection. 
So when an MA student indicated she want to make a, wanted to make a complaint about the conduct of the most senior professor in her department, she's told by the convener of the program, be careful, he is an important man. Be careful, a warning not to proceed is a statement about who is important. So importance is not just a judgment, it's a direction. This student went ahead with a complaint. In her terms, she sacrificed the references. And in reference to the prospect of doing a PhD, she said, that door is closed. That door is closed. References to can function as doors, as mechanisms that enable an opening or closing, how it is made possible for some to progress, others not. Reference systems are paper trails, letters sent out. They are how some are enabled by their connections, how some gather speed and velocity more and more, faster and faster. He is an important man. A paper trail, a path, a route, a narrow corridor. You have to go down that corridor to reach an open door. You have to go through that professor to get anywhere. So what I think of as institutional funneling, how paths become narrower and narrower at the exit points, is how many complaints are stopped. Many do not make complaints because they fear the, the loss of references, the loss of connections. And notice well that power can work through what appears as a very light touch. To close a door, all you need to do is lift a supportive hand, write a less positive reference. The mere lift of a supportive hand could function as the heaviest of weights, slow, heavy, down. I want to return to my suggestion that diversity work is war work. What you come up against does not appear to others. Doors can be shut despite appearing to be open or even through appearing to be open. We might think here of how diversity itself is often represented as an open door. We're back to that welcome, come in, come in. Of course, just because they welcome you, it doesn't mean they actually expect you to turn up. One university transformed the open door into a project of attaching black and minority ethnic staff and students to door panels across the campus. So here the Vice-Chancellor, white man, is indeed figured as holding the door open. But BME students and staff are pictured not even as going through the door, but as being on the door. <laughs> Doors can be shut after you enter, because you enter. In fact, for those deemed dependent on that door being opened, those who embody diversity, whose entry is understood as the acquisition of debt, doors can be shut at any point. A black woman academic was racially harassed and bullied by a white woman colleague. I think what she wanted to do was to maintain her position as a director, and I was supposed to be some pleb, you know what I mean? She had to be the boss and I had to be the servant type of thing. That was how her particular version of white supremacy worked. So not just belittling my academic credentials and academic capabilities, but also belittling me in front of the students, belittling me in front of administrators. How do you know it's about race? That's a question we often get asked. Racism is how we know it's about race. That wall, whiteness, or let's call it what it is as she has, white supremacy, you come to know it intimately as it what, is what keeps coming up. She told me, I put down that I would like to work towards becoming professor and she just laughed in my face. That laughter can be the sound of a door being slammed. To have got there, a black woman in a white institution, a lecturer, senior lecturer, on her way to becoming a professor, she's now a professor, is to be understood as getting above your station, above yourself, ahead of yourself. To belittle someone, to make them little, can function as a command to be little. And that command is being sent not only to her, but to those who are deemed to share the status of being subordinate, students and administrators. So racial harassment can be the effort to restore a hierarchy, 
how someone is being told you are not where you should be, you are above where you should be, or even you are where I should be, or even you have taken my place. A social category can be a house, a professor can be a building. Some of us in becoming professors become trespassers. You've been told you need permission to enter by, by, by being told you do not have permission. And that telling can be achieved with or through affection. We are back to doors, how backs become doors. When another white colleague becomes head of department, that colleague says, I want you to reconcile with her because after all, she is my friend and colleague and all she ever did was write you some long emails. Reconciliation, we are back to that cup of tea. Racial harassment can be reduced to a style of communication and the damage caused becomes damage to a friend, damage to a white friend, perhaps even damage to whiteness. So an expression of a desire for reconciliation might appear to be a friendly gesture, but there is nothing friendly about this gesture. If she doesn't return the desire for reconciliation, if she's not willing to smooth things over, moving on, getting along, getting on, she becomes mean, the one who has not only broken a connection, but refused to repair it. And whiteness then gets reproduced as sympathy, and sympathy becomes part of the machinery. A machine can lean, can be built out of leanings, friendly, like, in the end, she can't take it anymore, and she moves first to a different department, and then to a different university, and then to a different country. She goes, and the work goes with her. There are very few people left to work on race. Another woman of colour described her department as a revolving door. Women and minorities enter, only to head right back out again. Whoosh, whoosh. We can be kept out by what we find out when we get in. Perhaps we learn what is in from those who get out. This is my conclusion, complaint and survival. We learn from what we have to do to be. We learn from how some of us have to fight for what we need. I think of Audre Lorde. We were never meant to survive. For some, survival can be politically ambitious. It can require us to be inventive. It can require we chip away at those walls, however much I keep finding those chips on our shoulders. Diversity work, transforming institutions can be necessary if we are to survive them. Diversity work, we have to survive the institutions we are trying to transform. And so, diversity work can be the work we do to survive the work we do. I'm listening to an Indigenous woman academic. She told me how she could barely get to campus after a sustained campaign of bullying and harassment from white faculty including a concerted effort by a senior manager to sabotage her tenure case, as well as the tenure cases of other Indigenous academics. She makes a formal grievance that does not get anywhere. I had to send an email to her with the subject line in all capital letters with an exclamation point, my final email to her after seven months. This is a grievance. This is a grievance. And her obligation under university rules in the process is that she has to put it forward. She did not, she did not put it forward. When you are harassed and bullied, when doors are closed and they slammed, making it hard to get anywhere, it can be history you are thrown up against. And so when complaints take us back, they can take us back even further still to histories that are still. There is a genealogy of experience, a genealogy of consciousness in my body that is now at the stage traumatized beyond the capacity to go to university. So there's a legacy, a genealogy, and I haven't really opened that door too widely as I've been so focused on my own experience in the last seven years. To be traumatized is to hold a history in a body you can be easily shattered. There is only so much you can take on because there's only so much you can take in. And note, we can inherit closed doors. A trauma can be inherited by being made inaccessible 
all that happened that was too hard, too painful to reveal. Decolonial feminist work, black feminist work, feminist of color work is often about opening these doors, the door to what came before, colonial legacies and genealogies, harassment as a hardening of that history, a history of who gets to do what, who is deemed entitled to what, who is deemed entitled to whom. A complaint can be necessary. It can be what you have to do to go on, but you still have to work it out, what you can take on. She went on by taking them on. I took everything off my door, my posters, my activism, my pamphlets. I smudged everything all around the building. I knew I was going to war. I did a war ritual in our tradition. I pulled down the curtain. I pulled on a mask. My people, we have a mask, and I never opened my door for a year. I just let it be a crack, and only my students could come in. I would not let a single person come into my office who I had not already invited there for a whole year. Closing a door can sometimes be a survival strategy. She closes the door to the institution by withdrawing herself, her commitments from it. She still does her work. She still teaches her students. She makes use of the institution's door by using it to shut out what she can and who she can. And she takes herself off the door. She depersonalizes it. And she pulls down the blinds and she pulls on a mask, the mask of her people, connecting her fight to the battles that came before, because for her, quite frankly, this is a war. Our battles are not the same battles, but there are many battles happening behind closed doors. So this evening I've talked about some of them, sharing with you stories that have been shared with me. Behind closed doors, that is where complaints are often found. So that's where you might find us too, and what we bring with us, who we bring with us, the worlds that would not be here if some of us were not here, the data we hold, our bodies, our memories, perhaps the more we have to spill, the tighter the hold. Sometimes to get that data out, we have to become leaks, drip, drip. When I made the reasons for my own resignation public in protest against the failure to address sexual harassment as an institutional problem, I became a leak. I leaked out information, not, not actually that much, but enough. And I became very quickly the cause of damage. Indeed, so much of the work we do as feminist, anti-racist scholar activists is understood in these terms as damaging. To question what is received as wisdom is to commit an act of vandalism, the willful destruction of the venerable and beautiful. Decolonizing the curriculum has been framed in these terms as vandalism, knocking off the heads of statues, snapping at the thrones of the philosopher kings. And in order not to cause damage, we have to become containers. A smile is a container. In order not to cause damage, you have to be willing to reproduce the same thing. A feminist killjoy is a leaky container. She causes damage by what she is not willing not to reveal. But if we do this work, letting it out, spilling it out, getting it about, organizations will try and contain the damage. The response, in other words, is damage limitation. And this is often how diversity itself takes institutional form as damage limitation. Happy, shiny policies will be put in place, holes left by departures filled without reference to what went on before. A block becoming something to wipe up or wipe away like you're mopping up a mess. But there is hope here because they cannot mop up all of the mess. A leak can be a lead. A leak can be a feminist lead. I think of this lead as a finding. We find each other through complaints. Even when complaints lead us to leave, we leave something of ourselves behind by complaining. A postgraduate student made an informal complaint about white supremacy in her classroom, using that term for what is here 
at the university can get you in serious trouble. She knew that, but she was still willing to do that. And she became, in her terms, a monster, an Indigenous feminist monster, and is now completing her PhD off campus. But she said that an unexpected little gift was how other students could come to her. They know you are out there and they can reach out to you. And she repeated that expression a number of times, an unexpected little gift. So it might seem that complaints that do not get anywhere disappear without a trace. But in saying no, we keep a history alive. We do not let go. Sometimes you hold on by passing a refusal on. A complaint in taking you back can still point forward to those who come after, who can receive something from you because of what you tried to do, even though you did not get through, even though all you seemed to do was scratch the surface. So yes, those scratches, we are back to those scratches. They seem to show the limits of what we accomplished, but they can also be what we leave behind. They can be testimony, a complaint as writing on the wall, we were here, we did not disappear. Those complaints in the graveyard could come back to haunt institutions. We can come back to haunt institutions. It is a promise. Thank you.